in the last sort of month or two, we've been going through a brand new series uh, called uh, Confronting God's Questions, you know, sort of going through various different moments in Scripture where God asks a question that is not just good for the person um, uh, in that sort of uh, moment, but is good for us to reflect on as well. And so we've been going through these uh, uh, different questions that were asked, um, and kindly, uh, Andrew, who spoke last week, uh, went through uh, one of the questions Jesus asked of his disciples. And uh, um, we're going now into a Christmas season, so we won't be uh, uh, sort of continuing this series uh, this year. But it seemed uh, an opportunity uh, to um, go into this Christmas season with a, a divine question that has all sorts of ramifications uh, uh, for what we are going to be thinking about um, in the next sort of month or uh, a few weeks ahead. Um, and, and, and the context for the bit we're going to read from Scripture is um, uh, Israel has split. Um, there is a northern and southern kingdom. The northern kingdom goes downhill a lot quicker than the southern kingdom. Um, and uh, after the death of Solomon, his sort of sons fight over who's going to take over. Um, and there is this seismic moment, really big deal, when one of the southern kingdom's royal family encounters God. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Isaiah chapter, five, um, Isaiah chapter 6. It says this in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year the, um, the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim. Everyone say seraphim. Seraphim. Above him were seraphim, and each with six wings. Let's try and get your head around this being. He had six wings, and with two wings... They covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. So we have an extraordinary creature here. And it seems that they are sentient and can talk, and it goes on. And they were calling out to one another, so they were sort of encouraging one another and spurring each other on in worship. Holy, holy, holy. How many times is that? Saying the word holy? Three. Three. Very important number um, for, uh, in the scriptures. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of the vo their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. And you should get a sense of grandeur, a sense of occasion. You know, this is, um, uh, this is something profound going on. And then Isaiah cries out, Woe to me! I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim, everyone say seraphim. seraphim. Then one of the seraphim flew to me. So it's got two over its eyes, two over its feet, and it's got two wings that it's flying with. Um, and it flew to me with a live coal in its hand. And when he, uh, which he had taken uh, f with tongs from the altar. With it, it touched my mouth and said, See, um, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Everyone say atoned. atoned. 
Then I heard the voice of the Lord himself, and he was saying, Whom shall I send, and who shall go for us? And there's a sort of sneak peek of the doctrine of the Trinity in this plural reference of God to himself as plural. And it goes on. And I said, Here I am, send me. And God said, Go and tell um, this people. Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their eyes dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Everyone say, healed. Healed. Having said yes to God in this, uh, in this series of uh, visions, um, we find uh, Isaiah is then told, and we find it in the book, if you, if you read on in the book of Isaiah, we find a lot about the northern kingdom Israel and the southern kingdom Judah and their fate and what they can expect. But perhaps more importantly for Christians today is that throughout these prophecies of Isaiah, we find littered throughout them sort of um, different references to Messiah, to this um, extraordinary anointed one that the Jews were to expect and anticipate. And uh, Isaiah tells us all sorts of things about Jesus before Jesus steps on the earth. He says he would be born of a pure woman and, and, and we find out um, in the first century that that means that she'd be a virgin. We find out that he was descended from David, that this anointed Messiah would be uh, descended from uh, Jesse. And we would find that he would be God incarnate, that he would be God among us. And Isaiah tells us that he would live righteously and that his death would count for us. We, we find all these different signposts as to what um, the Messiah is going to be. And if you interrogate uh, these prophecies, you'll find out virtually all you need to know about Jesus before he even took a breath. Hopefully, if you're here, you already find the person of Jesus captivating, someone uh, that you love listening to uh, and reading about and worshipping and uh, and when we come to Isaiah, we, should, we can appreciate again the, just the, the magnificence of the plan that brought Jesus to earth. You know, before uh, um, uh, Mary and Joseph were even born, God had uh, uh, planned uh, a great salvation escape. And uh, it, it adds to the depth of who Jesus was. You know, he didn't make his own story, but he was part of a very carefully planned divine intervention. And, and the prophecies of I just magnify the magnificence of Jesus tenfold. And as, as we go into this Christmas period, as we look forward maybe to uh, December, and particularly uh, December the 25th, it's, Isaiah gives us a chance again to wonder at God's plan, to take it in, to appreciate its richness, the fact that it was um, put in place well before uh, Mary and Joseph, well before their parents or their parents' parents, uh, uh, God had ordained for mankind to be saved 
by this first century rabbi. And, it's, and his arrival, his life and his death were not accidental. They weren't random. They weren't just good luck. They were perfectly and expertly executed. And it tells you something about Jesus. tells you something about the Father and the Spirit. That this is how they saw fit to save mankind. So time and time again we find... Um, people launch into careers to, to uh, be in leadership, to be in positions of responsibility. Um, if you've been watching uh, I'm a Celebrity, you'll know that one of the uh, uh, members of parliament is still in there, uh, despite all the public's uh, attempts to get rid of him and he's been doing all sorts of unspeakable trials uh, uh, to do it. Um, but uh, Matt Hancock... He, he, he's a celebrity because he was first a, um, uh, someone who wanted to do good, you know. He, he, uh, he wanted to uh, lead the country. He wanted to uh, uh, make helpful decisions for people. Now, whether he did or not, um, we're not going to discuss that. But you'll find again and again, people want to have a voice they want to do something helpful. They want to lead the people in a good direction and counter perhaps uh, uh, some negative influences. But the thing is, with people in power, is that if they are not careful, they start only paying attention to those that tell them what they want to hear. And what it does is the people in power often become conceited and have a behaviour uh, uh, that becomes more and more warped and distorted. And um, we, we have seen it in our own politics and in international politics. Uh, this, this sort of uh, uh, spiralling out of control of people in power leads to ill-advised parties, it leads to disastrous mini-budgets, it leads to calamitous wars with neighbours that were completely unnecessary, it leads to uh, cultures of bullying and uh, all sorts of other things. When uh, leaders start only listening to people that tickle their ears, things go very wrong very quickly. Now, Isaiah 6, right at the start, mentions a king has died. I wonder if you know much about the king. But the king is Uzziah, and it seems that he's just died. And the fact that he's just died adds a complexion to this moment that I, um, that I was uh, uh, um, found helpful and I wanted to present to you this morning. If you've got a Bible, turn to 2 Kings, chapter 15. We're going to learn a little bit about King Uzziah and why it's significant that, the God, that God comes to uh, Isaiah moments after um, Uzziah had died. So 2 Kings, chapter 15. It says this in 2 Kings 15, verse 1. In the 27th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, so king of Israel, that's the northern kingdom, um, Azariah, son of Amaziah, king of Judah, began to reign. And Azariah is a longer form of Uzziah. Um, and Uzziah was 16 year old when he became king. I wonder if you know any 16 year olds. And I wonder if you think that they're in a place to rule a country. 
This wasn't sort of a constitutional monarchy where they didn't really make any decisions. This was a guy that had to make important decisions at 16. So he was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 52 years. And his mother's name was Jechaliah, and she was from Jerusalem. And Uzziah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Amaziah had done. So we find often in scripture that the northern kingdom makes bad decisions and the southern kingdom makes good decisions. And we have uh, this moment where the king Uzziah, who's in charge of the southern kingdom, makes good decisions apparently for 52 years of his reign. And we find um, that the if you've uh, heard of the prophet Zechariah um, in, in scripture, prophet Zechariah spoke to this king. Um, and King Uzziah, for 52 years, seems again and again to have made some good decisions, some wise decisions, and that he was pious. You know, he, 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 had, uh, uh, um, he was orientated towards God uh, often in his thinking, and it meant that this southern kingdom enjoyed lots of peace and prosperity. You know, it grew in wealth and it grew in influence, um, and uh, the people enjoyed this uh, uh, King Uzziah uh, being in charge of them. And so he's blessed with long life, and, and long life's often a, a blessing, particularly in the Old Testament. And he sat on the throne for 52 years. That's longer than either King David or King Solomon. And, and so there is implicit in this long ball a, a, a time of blessing. And it sounds like a good king, doesn't it? If you've got a Bible, I want you to turn to another history book in Scripture, 2 Chronicles chapter 26, because the, the picture of King Uzziah is not all good. So 2 Chronicles chapter 26. This is the guy um, who listened to God, listened to Zechariah, who oversaw all sorts of uh, wealth and prosperity in, in, in his kingdom. And then, at the near the end of his reign, it says this. But after King Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God. And he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. And um, Azariah, the priest with 80 other courageous priests of the Lord, followed him in. This is the king. This is the guy that has life and death over his people, who's not bound by the rule of law uh, that we appreciate today. And uh, so these priests, courageous priests, come in. And these priests who are in danger of their lives... In verse 18 says, They confronted King Uzziah and said, It is not right for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. That is for the priests, the descendants of Aaron, who have been consecrated to burn incense. Leave the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful and you will not be honoured by the Lord your God. I wonder how good we are at being told off. I wonder how good we are at being told off, whether it's by our staff or our manager or by our spouse or by our children, um, whether, how we take it. You know, do we go, you know what, you're right. I'm just going to give in and, 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 and just agree with you because you're just like, in this moment, I've been unwise. 
Sadly, King Uzziah didn't have that perception at this point. Uzziah, who had a censer in his hand, ready to burn incense, became angry. While he was raging at the priests, it's a real scene, isn't it, in the temple? You know, this, this king who loved God has suddenly gone rogue. Um, and while he was raging at the priests in their presence, before the very incense altar in the Lord's temple, leprosy broke out on his forehead. It's a very conspicuous place. It's, it's something that everyone would be able to be seen. And when Azariah, um, Azariah the chief priest, and all the other priests looked at him. They saw he had leprosy on his forehead and they hurried him out. Indeed, himself was eager to leave because the Lord had afflicted him. And King Uzziah had leprosy until the day he died. He lived in a separate house. He was leprous and he was excluded from the temple of the Lord. Jotham, his son, had charge of the palace and he governed the people of the land. Despite a lifetime of godliness, Uzziah ends badly. His um, understanding of himself and uh, his rights as king uh, uh, get distorted and he goes into a place that he shouldn't go to do something that he's not authorised to do. And that sense of entitlement wrecks him. He ended his life so badly that he was cut off from his family and from the temple and for his uh, responsibilities and privileges of being king of the people. It's a, it's a terrible story and a terrible warning that um, we need people that will come alongside us and correct us, that will uh, uh, come alongside us and go, you are out of order for doing that. You know, some people will do it gently, some people won't, but we need to be in a place where we can hear people and their words of advice and wisdom. And um, so this passage in Isaiah starts off, King Uzziah dies. And when you say King Uzziah, it recounts that story, it reminds you of that story of him living well for 52 years and then ending badly. And it's interesting that Uzziah was king and then God is described as a heavenly eternal king. And we're told that his rule is unending. And it gives us this picture of here is a king. You know, Uzziah, well, this is your heavenly king. But the question occurs when you have just had the life and death of Uzziah, what sort of king is God? Is he a good king? Or is he a despot? Is he someone that will rage against you? Is he someone that uh, you will become a victim of? Will the Lord be arrogant in his dealings with us? Will he abuse those that love him, that serve him? Will he become a curse to us, we who follow him? That is the question um, that this, like the very first verse poses. It says, King Uzziah dies, the Lord is king. And the question is, is he going to be like Uzziah? Well, there, thankfully, there is someone that helps us with this question. We discover in this uh, vision that there are these strange, sentient beings 
They are sentient beings in the presence of God and they are neither God nor human. And there are various Jewish scholars that say these aren't angels either. They are something different. They are a heavenly being that are neither messengers of God or human. They are a different category of being. And what we have here is an independent witness to God's character. They have spent time with God. They know who he is. And unlike humans which made from the dust and we are plagued with sin, these creatures are more marvellous than we can imagine. In, in, in fact, we can often struggle to process what they would even look like. Um, and our mortal minds struggle to comprehend who they are. But they are in the presence of God. And they give us a suggestion of what type of king he is. If you've got a Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 4, because this isn't the only reference to seraphim um, in Scripture. It says this in Revelation chapter 4, verse 6. Also, in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the centre... Round the stone were four living creatures. And if you thought the wings were a bit odd, well, we find in Revelation that they were covered with eyes in front and behind. And verse 7 says, The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had a face like a man, and the fourth was a flying eagle. And each of these faces tell us something and if we had more time we could look at the meaning of these um, different faces but it goes on um, and the fourth was flying like an eagle each of the four living creatures had six wings this is the seraphim and John gives us a little bit more details of them they had six wings um, and uh, were covered with eyes all around even under its wings and, and so um, if you thought Isaiah's description of the seraphim was weird, well, well John just takes it to the whole new level. Uh, um, day and night, they never stop saying. I wonder if this is familiar. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And some of that is exactly what Isaiah heard. So we find the prophet John experiencing a heavenly um, vision uh, that Isaiah had enjoyed previously. And it says in verse 9, Whenever the living creatures give glory and honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders uh, fall down before him who sits on the throne. And they worship him who uh, lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you have created all things and by your will you were created and have their being. And so John leads us even further into this scene of heavenly worship. These beings, these seraphim, are extraordinary. They are almost impossible for our minds uh, to properly grasp. And, and that seems appropriate for a heavenly being, you know. It's someone that we'd struggle to process because it's so marvellous, so heavenly, so not like what we're used to. And they are powerful and they're perceptive um, and they can talk uh, and they can relate. But they seek, there's no recognition of themselves. They don't seek uh, worship. They don't seek 
um, any sort of um, reverence for who they are. Instead, um, we find that uh, they declare God holy. They don't just declare him holy once, but they do it three times. And there is, um, when something is done three times, there's a sense of completeness, a sense of wholeness. And, and so these seraphim that are singing and saying out loud, holy, 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 they're saying God is far above anything you've experienced before. God is pious and good and righteous and wonderful. And he is so not uh, incompletely, not poorly like Uzziah was, but he is better than you can imagine. And so they declare that their God is far above Uzziah, that anyone that's worried that God is going to be something like the fallen human experience they've had, they say, no, no, don't worry. He's nothing like Uzziah. He's holy and marvellous. He is something to enjoy, someone whose presence is beautiful. Um, it's, uh, it's going to capture your heart and soul. And we should be reassured in this vision of Isaiah that this God we serve doesn't lead us down paths to hurt us, doesn't bring us purposes to make us feel small. He doesn't do anything to damage us, but to grow us, um, to do good to us, to prosper us. There is this reassurance in this uh, prophet's vision that God is good. That you may have had a bad parent or a bad father, you may have had a bad manager, a bad leader, a bad king. But all these are poor comparisons to God Almighty. He is perfect in every way. You are safe in his hands. And Isaiah is rightly overwhelmed by all of this. You know, it's so much to take in. Um, he has encountered a better and higher king than Uzziah. And he is struck, and I really like this, he is struck first and foremost by his fallenness. He is very self-consciously aware that he does not measure up to God's presence, that he shouldn't be there. He is a man uh, with sinful lips and he lives amongst the people that are sinful. He is suddenly acutely aware of God's, in God's presence of his selfishness. He is acutely aware of all the things that he's done that were uh, uh, questionable, all the things that he's done uh, that were out of order. And in, in his mind, in the holiness of God, he is struck by his inadequacy. That sin is not just a small thing. That sin is not just something to just say, I'm sorry for. But it's this malignant cancer that separates us from God. We can't enter his presence with it in our lives. And as Isaiah feels deeply upset by his sin, it should make us think of our own lives. Each of us are sinners. And each of us uh, have an idea of our sin. If you think your sin isn't too bad, if you sit in this place and think, well, at least I'm not that, then you haven't appreciated God's goodness. If you sit in this room and you think, 
oh, I'm not a murderer, I'm not a criminal, I'm not a this or a that, then you haven't appreciated God's goodness. If you think you can stand in God's presence with the things in your life that are not right, then you are terminally misguided. Only when you start to appreciate the holiness, that holy, holy, holiness of God, that three times holiness, only when uh, you appreciate his perfection and beauty will you start to see your sin for what it is. This malignant cancer that just wrecks people. This terrible thing that has just destroyed lives and is destroying lives today. And Isaiah is sensible to this. He goes, this sin is the worst thing. And he cries out for help because he realises he can't do anything. He goes, God, help. I'm undone in your presence. I can't survive. I know my sin is there. All these single moments of rebellion against you, I can't hold on. Help me. And what we find is one of these seraphs, one of these mysterious beings with eyes all around them and head of different beasts and six wings. The seraph removes the guilt. How does it do that? But it takes a coal from the altar. This altar is where the sacrifice happens. From this place of sacrifice, from this place where a being lost its life in worship to God, in adoration to him, a coal from that place of sacrifice comes and touches Isaiah's lips. And we find a moment of redemption. We find a moment of salvation. We find a moment of atonement. We Christians have so many different words for the same thing. And right there, in the throne room of God, who is holy, 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 where his majesty is uh, not hidden, where his power uh, and uh, um, authority is uncontained, where sin surely has no place where sin, surely, um, we should only be met with judgment and severe punishment. We have a moment of grace. We have a beautiful moment where Isaiah, who is, suddenly becomes very aware of his fallenness, is saved by this coal that touches his lips. And we have this beautiful moment of redemption from the place of sacrifice. And we find Isaiah, this prophet, is made clean by this coal from the altar. And we should find it encouraging and helpful this morning. It should breathe uh, a breath of fresh air into our lives. Whenever we encounter moments of grace, you know, unlooked for favour, it's a good time to stop. It's a good time to remind ourselves of the central feature of this faith. The central feature is not you need to do better. It is not you need to be good. It is not you need to give, uh, give to the poor. It is not you need uh, to go to church. It's not that you need to pray more or uh, be bashed over the head because you're not reading scripture. The core of this faith that we have is that moment of grace that was extended to Isaiah in the very throne room. Where surely only punishment and judgment should be met on sin. And even there, God was gracious and compassionate. 
It is a beautiful aspect of God's character that gives every single person hope. Each of us, who even after becoming Christians still sin, we have this hope that we may live. Not because we've listened to scripture, not because we've obeyed what the preacher said, not because we followed the um, wisdom of whatever devotional book we're reading or whatever encouraging song we're listening to. It's because of God's grace. There is a song called Grace by the band U2 and, and some of the lyrics are on the screen. It says, Grace, she takes the blame, she covers the shame, removes the stain, It's the name for a girl, and it's also a thought that changed the world. And when she walks on the street, you can hear the strings, and grace finds goodness in everything. The the band who wrote and recorded that, um, the lead singer, wrote this about this song. The universe operates by karma. We all know that. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Then enters grace, and she turns that upside down. I love it. Christ's ministry really was a lot to do with pointing out how everybody is a screw-up in some shape or form, and there's no way around it. If you don't admit you're a screw-up here this morning, you are stuffed. If you cannot come this morning and go, I've screwed up and I need some help, then you don't understand what grace is and the message of salvation has no hope for you. You have to be, come to that place where you go, man, I have messed up again. And so the, uh, uh, the right continues. Christ's ministry really was a lot to do with pointing out everybody's a screw up in, shape, in some shape or form and there's no way around it. But then he was to say, well, I'm going to deal with those sins for you. I will take on myself all the consequences of sin. Even if if you're not religious, I think that you'd accept that there are consequences to all the mistakes we make. And so grace enters the picture to say, I'll take the blame. I'll carry your cross. And it is a powerful idea. Grace interrupting karma. As we are bowled over, as we're bowled over by the grace of God through the, cro- the cross of Christ, we should be gracious. Everyone around us is a screw-up too. Everyone around us is messing things up. And they become opportunities for grace too. Just as we've received grace, we can be gracious to everyone around us. We do not treat them as they deserve. We get to be generous to them even though they haven't been generous to us. We get to forgive them, even though they may not forgive us. We get to let them off, even when they don't do it to us. It's one of the few conditions of the Lord's Prayer, is that when you pray it, you forgive your enemies, because God has forgiven you. And having been redeemed, having been saved in that very presence of God, when surely he should have been burnt to a crisp, Isaiah hears God's need for a messenger. He goes, you know, I need the message to go out. I need someone to serve me in this respect. I need someone to say something to the people of Judah, to the people um, uh, of Israel. 
And Isaiah is done. What's he going to do? He's going to say, no, no, I don't want to go. He has just received the most precious grace. He has been forgiven. He has been allowed to see the throne of God. And he has seen these bizarre seraphs worship and uh, uh, talk about God in a way that lifts his heart. He is humming with a longing to serve. And so when God says, um, who should we send? Isaiah's hands straight up and he goes, send me. And the Lord puts in his mouth, good news. But a good news, that's going to provoke a bad reaction. It's interesting, Isaiah's job is to talk to a people that are going to resist what he has to say. Today, if we follow and serve Jesus... We should find an internal compulsion that we want to extend grace and love to other people that we want to tell them about this Jesus. You know, he has saved me. He can do the same for you. And we've also got these explicit instructions of Jesus. Go out into all the world and make disciples, all of you. Go and find people that will listen to my message. And so we have this internal and an external compulsion on our hearts to be messengers too. To also go out into the world with a message from God himself. The Messiah has come. The whole world right now has got Christ mass on its minds. And we know the centre of that. The person that gave it meaning. We know the grace that he brings. The forgiveness. The purpose. The uh, uh, freedom from guilt. The freedom from shame. The hope for a future. We are divinely loved. And we have an eternity to look forward to. All these things are treasures of our soul that money can't buy. But if you've been a Christian a long time, or even a small amount of time, you will be recognised Isaiah's issue in that he's not going to be received well. The people aren't going to rejoice at his words. He will encounter suspicion, hostility and contempt. And do you know what? That's the same of us. This message of grace that we carry, that we cherish, that we want to spread out, that we teach our children on a Sunday morning, that is the delight of our heart through the week, it doesn't get received with a hop, skip and a jump. Lots of people don't say, oh, I really want to hear that. We too are treated with suspicion, hostility and contempt because other people's hearts are hardened just as ours once were. But there are people that will listen. They're not the majority, Jesus warns us. You know, it's not uh, everyone will suddenly hear you at work talk about Jesus and then rush down um, uh, to church uh, and uh, confess their sins. But there are people out there who God has chosen to be part of his people. And we get to be messengers of them. The privilege of sharing and seeing someone come to faith is next to none. I'm not sure there is a more beautiful honour than to lead someone else into faith in Christ. 
And God's question this morning is still, who shall I send? To each of us this morning, it's who shall I send? And the answer today is you and me. And as we head into December, and the entire month is taken up by the madness of a Western Christmas, I want that question to reverberate around your mind. Who shall I send? And I don't, and I encourage you not to answer someone else, God, I'm busy. You know, the, as, as Christmas comes, we can get wrapped up in all sorts of different things. We can become preoccupied with all the different demands of Christmas. And when God asks, who shall I send, please, Don't miss that privilege and say, yeah, go somewhere else. I've got to do overtime. I've got to pack the presents. I've got to uh, uh, buy presents for the kids. I've got to host the family. Um, I've got to do all these different things. Allow that question to be not just an addendum to your Christmas, but let it be a central motif. Let it be a, a prime motivator As God says, who shall I send? And you go, you know what? Me. I want to be part of this. I want to be part of this uh, message of grace. I want to see someone else's eyes opened. I want to see someone else have their lips touched by that car. I want someone else to be able to encounter God. And so for some of you, it's a simply an encouragement to talk about Jesus during this time of Christmas. To some of us, it's when... People ask us questions to be honest and full in our answers. But because it's Christmas, we're trying to make things a little easier as well. And, and so we've, we've got some invites that you can share around. You can drop through doors and put in Christmas tarts and um, whatever else. You can give to the YMCA guys. They are reaching out to the homeless um, sort of young adults and, and, and putting them in place in Bubush. And we want to be generous to them and go, let us tell you of the grace through this gift. And some of you hopefully know that Love Your Neighbours running all sorts of things and you have an opportunity to make these bags of love and to give them out and to nominate your neighbour. And I just invite you, rather than, oh, God, I want my Christmas to be special and for everything to go right and for me to get everything I ever wanted. Just invite you to think of it slightly differently as a moment to be sent, as a moment to reach out, as a moment to change someone else's idea of Christmas forever. Please bow your heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you for grace. We thank you that she changes everything, that she makes our lives beautiful. And uh, God, we thank you for sending Jesus and we thank you that he is the one. That means that we are forgiven, that we can stand in your presence without fear of reprisals or punishment. And Lord God, as Isaiah rose to the challenge of being sent in this vision, Lord God, I pray that we as a fellowship would rise to the challenge of being sent over this season. 
that we wouldn't become preoccupied uh, with our own enjoyment and, and, and making sure that we got our needs met, but we would look to serve, that we would look to give, that we would look to impart the most important thing a person can hear. Lord God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.